we formed our family through adoption and our kids had challenges that just stemmed from that fact. It's pretty common for adopted kids to feel abandoned or unwanted by their families of origin. For our daughter, this led to anxiety and depression as she struggled with this knowledge. She turned to street drugs as a way, I think, of self-medicating. And we knew this, and we thought we had a handle on it. Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter, a weekly podcast on the art and craft of the personal narrative story. Each week, my partner Kurt and I will tackle one question and answer it as best we can to help you craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories, personal stories, grit stories. This week, our feature storyteller is Don Picard. Don lives up in Massachusetts, and he has got a 12-minute story. And when Don's done, Kurt and I will tackle this week's question, does hope matter in storytelling? And stick around, because when Kurt and I are finished, Don has something to say about that question as well. And real quick, before we dive in... Kurt and I want to thank you. Really thank you for listening and your support. If you want to follow us on social media right now, we've got a Facebook page, Grit, True Stories That Matter. If you listen to this podcast on Apple, help us out by rating or reviewing it. It really does help. If you have a question, a comment, an idea, feel free to message us or shoot us an email. Hello at storygrit.com. And finally, let people know about us in this podcast. Again, we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Let's dive in. When I came out to my family, it was bumpy. (laughs) It was hard. My family is pretty Catholic. And my mom was a Eucharistic minister, and she took the news particularly hard. She had a really difficult time. At one point, She even threatened to commit suicide as if that would solve any problems. But to my mom's credit, she kept the lines of communication open, and there were a lot of difficult conversations, but at least they were happening, and it got better. That wasn't true for some of my friends. I mean, they were literally disowned by their families. One friend in particular, things had gotten bad, and he wanted to go and speak with his parents, and so he drove from Boston back to his hometown in New Jersey. And when he got to the house that he had grown up in, that's when he found out that they didn't live there anymore. His parents had packed up and sold their house and moved to another state and didn't tell him. His aunt had to break the news. And so when Robert and I decided to form a family, We talked about what kind of parents did we want to be. We're engineers by training, and I think part of being an engineer is to think of the things that can go wrong. And so we spent time thinking about the things that can go wrong. And what were the challenges that our kids would give us that would fundamentally cause us to question our beliefs, you know, like we did for our own families? 
we couldn't think of anything. I mean, we we struggled and talked about it and couldn't think of anything, which is, of course, hubris, or at least a distinct lack of an imagination. We did agree that no matter what, home would always be a safe space. No matter what happened, no matter what they did, or how old they were, they were always welcome to come home. I jokingly said, well, what if they turn out to be Republicans? And we decided that that's okay. We would love them anyway. And that was kind of it. We formed our family through adoption, and our kids had challenges that just stemmed from that fact. It's pretty common for adopted kids to feel abandoned or unwanted by their families of origin, by their birth families. For our daughter, this led to anxiety and depression as she struggled with this knowledge this feeling that she had been abandoned by her birth mom. She turned to street drugs as a way, I think, of self-medicating. And we knew this, and we thought we had a handle on it, but we didn't. Then there was the day that she overdosed, and it was clear that we needed professional help, all of us. And she went to a wilderness therapy program for three months, and then from there to a residential treatment program for young women in recovery. And that was all about a year long. And when she was done, the treatment program gave us advice that we should have a contract with her, kind of a rules of the road for living with us again. I don't remember all of it. It kind of ended up getting reduced to just one thing which is that she just needed to stay clean. She needed to not be using. And again, since we're engineers, we didn't want to get into a debate of whether or not this was happening. And so we purchased drug test kits and she would just have to agree to a random drug test. Initially, I didn't think we would need very many and I would just go buy them at CVS, but they were like 50 bucks a pop and it got pretty expensive pretty quickly. I ended up doing a thing I never even thought I would be doing or knew to be possible, but I bought them in bulk from Amazon. She knew what the rules were and she was okay with it. I mean, there were times that she would take the test and there was no issue and we all continued to be together. And then there were other times when she couldn't stay. And so she would go and be with her friends. And this kind of came to a head on a Wednesday, uh, Wednesday before Thanksgiving. She was in the house and she was with us. She was going to spend the night in a hotel with a friend because she knew she wouldn't have a clean drug test. The friend was going to pay for the hotel room. She asked me if I could put it on my credit card and I said, sure, but he needs to pay me first. He showed up kind of late in the evening, and he didn't have any money. And then she asked me if I would just pay for the room anyway and consider it to be a birthday present. And I said, no, your birthday is in January, and this is November. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? It got tense, and... Her friend kind of sensed that tension, not that it was all that subtle. 
and he left. I kept asking her, where can I bring you? I thought she would find a place in a shelter or stay with a friend, but it got late, and I don't think any shelters were open. And for whatever reason, there didn't seem to be any friends who could take her in. This was her responsibility. And so I asked her again, is there some place I can bring you? And she said, yes. There was a homeless community. They were living in tents under the BU bridge. And that's where she wanted me to bring her. I said, okay. And she got in the car. And on the way there, we got into a bit of um discussion or argument. I don't really know how to qualify it. It's like neither of those things. It was certainly impassioned. And there were some loud voices from both of us. And I think for me, it was mostly a can't believe that this is where we're at now. Like this is what we're doing now. I'm bringing my daughter to sleep outside under a bridge. It was 13 degrees out. And at one point, in a moment of anger, I guess, I accused her of abandoning her baby. Robert and I had been taking care of her daughter, our granddaughter, for several months at this point. My daughter stopped me cold. She said no. She was very clear. She told me, I left my daughter with two people who love her and can take care of her at a time when I cannot. That is not abandonment. I did not abandon my daughter. And I said, you're right. I'm sorry. I didn't have the presence of mind. I wasn't smart enough and fast enough to think, to say that her mother had been in that same situation. Her mother wasn't able to take care of her, and she found two people to love her and raise her. It was not abandonment. At its core, it's an act of love. Anyway, I got to the rotary by the BU Bridge, and I watched my daughter get out and walk away. She ducked under the bridge, and I drove home. I got home and went to bed, but I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep because it was 13 degrees out. I couldn't sleep because I thought there was a greater than zero chance my daughter might freeze to death. I didn't think it was likely, but I did think it was possible. I thought she might get wasted and walk in the wrong direction and fall in the river and freeze to death. Kind of all of the scenarios playing out in my mind ended with her freezing to death. And so every few minutes I would grab my phone and check the weather and see if it was getting any warmer. And it wasn't. Not until the morning. I waited as long as I could, but at 10 in the morning, I just had to know if she was okay. And so I called her and I spoke with her. She wasn't dead. I reminded her that it was Thanksgiving Day 
and that we were invited to her aunt's house for dinner. And would she like to join us? She said, I can't believe you. I can't believe that after what happened last night, after what you said to me last night, that you think I would join you for Thanksgiving dinner. I was honest. I said, I don't know what you're going to do. That's up to you. I just wanted to make sure you knew that you were welcome. There was a long pause. And she said, okay. But you'll have to come pick me up. I need to shower. So I drove back to the BU bridge. And I watched her emerge and get in the car. And I brought her home. And she showered and got dressed. And we all went to Thanksgiving dinner together. And it was really nice. We had a nice time. I know from all the therapy and the training that these boundaries are important for all of us. I know that she needs to push against them to confirm that they're secure. And we need to be able to hold firm. And that's one of the things that will help keep her safe. It's no guarantee. I do know that she's doing better now. And that gives me hope. And I also know that recovery is not a straight line. It's been a few years since that night, and she is doing better. I don't know how it's all going to work out. But I do know that every night when I'm putting my granddaughter to bed, I rub her back and she's awake, but it's just part of our nighttime ritual. She likes to recount all the people in her life who love her. It helps her fall asleep. Every night, I remind her that the people who love her all want the same thing. We want her to grow up to be happy and healthy and the best version of herself that she can be. Our feature storyteller, Don Picard. Thanks, Don. Next up, Kurt and I tackle this week's question, does hope matter in storytelling? And when we're done, Don has something to say about that as well. Let's dive in. We wanted to talk today about the role of hope in a story like this. I think some people think hope is often tied to a happy ending. Hope is often tied to some positive stuff. That might be the case for some. For many people, hope is tied to somebody sharing something very real. Because when I hear that, I am thinking about my relationship maybe with somebody or something that I'm dealing with. When you share this stuff, vulnerable stuff, very honest stuff, people that hear it, I don't know, they feel less alone. To me, that feels hopeful. Part of what hope is for me is somebody sharing that kind of stuff in a way that I can digest it, receive it. It's a great point you're making is it's hope that there's someone out there take the elements of his life and use his imagination, his or her, and bring it together to produce a story like this that gets you and I talking and other people talking. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Don's philosophy is, but it's a generous act in my book. So another, so you were like defining hope as a thing that gets imparted to people who bother to listen to stories. 
bother to enjoy this art, who really enjoy this art. They get a sense of hopefulness uh, that there's this like catalog of works. Like there's, uh, you can get online and, and hear so many good storytellers at work today. There's a hopefulness and thinking that people have worked hard at their skill set and they're like, you know, something had happened today that they're just going to collect and deliver. And then connecting with what you're saying, Sean, about how, you know, we all basically come in the world alone and we go out alone. And what we're trying to do in the middle is connect with each other and feel less alone. And storytelling mm -hmm. is such an awesome way to do that. Awesome that as small as our community may be, to think that there are a lot of people who really are in it for the, the art of it. So let's have this conversation, Sean. There's this idea that you need a certain ending in storytelling. So I'm in north of Boston. There's a local radio station. There's a guy who will sit and interview on his radio show, like local craftspeople or artisans and whatnot. And I'm like, hey, you should interview me because I'm offering teaching classes and, and I, I'm offering storytelling classes and more people need to know about me. So I'm pitching my thing to him. And one of the first things that comes out of his mouth is, I think I know what you're talking about, live storytelling. I've seen that show on PBS, um, Stories from the Stage, and man, some of them are so depressing. Oh, you get, you're going to really get me started here. <laughs> so I think what you're saying is there's, there's a lot of hope even in stories that are purely realistic and therefore not bright and shiny as a penny at the end. I think the idea that hope is something that you wrap in a bow and have a happy ending is not only for me not accurate, I think it's harmful. Sure, there are people that might get something hopeful out of those things, right? A Disney ending, a happy ending, not even that extreme, just a, a bow on top. Okay. And I know people like that. The guy who says that those stories are depressing, and I don't know which stories he's referring to, right? Some are probably better stories than others. And I don't know. Look, I'm going to reference my other podcast with suicide attempt survivors, we don't really share stories the way we're talking about it. You know, we have this sort of larger use of the word story. So I might say suicide attempt survivor stories, but they're not what we're talking about in terms of story. No, they're conversational. They're conversational. And if somebody were to say that's very depressing, I would say you're not the right audience for that because there's a large audience, certainly an audience that it's so not depressing. When someone's talking about their suicide attempt and what they went through and the pain and the struggle, and maybe they're also talking about recovery or there's a lot of people that need to hear other people's struggle. And it doesn't necessarily need to end with, and everything's okay now. Most of the suicide attempt survivors I've spoken with, most, not all, things are not okay now. They're better in that, I don't wanna use the word better, they're alive. And they have an interest in sharing. Not everybody does. And they actually went out of their way to either respond back to me or reach out to me. I hear when people say things and respond, oh, that's dark and that's depressing. I'm like, I think you're just a different audience. That's all. So you want something different out of story. And I guess that's okay. Entertainment. Maybe. Yeah. Really hard for me to do. Like I have an empathy gap, if you will, when I think about that. Does that so you go to work, you feed yourself, you do the maintenance at home. And then when it's time to reflect on how you're moving through life this one time, Disney suffices. Right. Happy ending suffices. It's funny, like I, we've mentioned Disney, but I, I've noticed when I watch like some kids programming, there's some really dark stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that uh, distraction of the sitcom, you know, yeah. of the reality TV show. I, I get distraction. 
you don't want to always be using your your mind. You got to rest. That's the part where I, I just get kind of judgmental. I can't believe that there isn't some time in everyone's week to be like, all right, let's move some th- through some of this stuff. And I imagine, I imagine that someone like Don, you know, he got off that stage that night that I saw him in Boston. People are complimenting, praising him on a story. And he's like, yeah, a real barrel of monkeys, right? He's almost <laughs> like, you know, that's just, his, I think that's just his personality. Think about yeah. what Don just did was he took, he's like, that's difficult. That's the stuff of creation. That's what I want to spend my time on. It confuses me emotionally. And I want, I'm going to move my way through that. And I can, I can picture him also when he's done with it, moving on to the next. Imagine if it just sat there in your chest and just spooled, like that's just something that happened. These And you didn't claim it, you yeah. know, and tell it. I think there's incredible catharsis that comes with not the happy ending, but telling the story as it appears to you, because nothing is ever perfect. We were just talking about, we're both crowding 50 and really bad things can happen to men our age. Suddenly, like heart attacks. Right. You know, like that stuff, we're there. Don's like, I'm, you know what? I'm putting my beautiful granddaughter to bed and my daughter's doing well right now. I'm never going to tell you that everything's going to be perfect because he knows too much. But I know people who really say life is difficult. There's a lot of bad in the world. I don't want to hear more bad stuff. Okay. It's okay that I'm different than you. And that's that. I don't know always how people are moved by stories, especially on Zoom as opposed to something live. Yeah. Yeah. You could tell a funny story or a happy story. And if you're really good at this, people will remember it and remember you and be like, that was awesome. Right. You got a great romp, funny. If you've got certain skills, you know, comedic skills or otherwise, maybe it's really great. And we've heard stories like that. You're not going to get somebody, if this is something you want, and it's a reflection of something that I think is important of, thank you so much for telling that story. You know when you're going to get that? When you do something like Don did. Thank you for telling that story. You don't probably get that with a funny romp. You don't necessarily get that with something that has to end happy or has this sort of thread of everything's fine, I'm fine. Maybe, maybe. Look, man, I don't know your audience and they might be like, that's great. Thank you. Hmm. I think people are most appreciative of the story and the storyteller when they're like, no, stuff's hard and I'm trying and nope, I can't promise you it's going to be okay, (laughs) but I'm trying and I'm going to carve a a story out of that. And um, what do you think? To me, the fact that Don is willing to share that is the hopeful part. But if he didn't craft it in a way that works in quotes, it might be something, but it wouldn't be something, something like it is. So for me, it's you've got this person who's willing to do, to go there like he is, and because he crafts it in a certain way that I think for most people works, it gives it more, the things we want, right? Compelling, relatable, and not easy to make that story t- that relatable. And I don't know, maybe some people didn't relate to it, but it's it's not just about addiction. It's a relationship story. At first, when I heard this, live in Boston, I was like, oh, this is brutal, this choice he has to make. And, you know, in this story, in this version, he's like waking up in the morning, he's not sleeping well. He's like, okay, did it warm up? There's a greater than 0% chance that she's not okay, right? And it would have been, quote unquote, easier for a father to be like, all right, go ahead, you know, just this once. But he decided that the most hopeful way they could be is just to keep to the rules. And maybe she can come out of it. 
you know, with addiction, can't really waver with people, I don't think. So Don in his husband's role in all of this is like, look, we told you there are rules and we need to be stand firm by them. That's my takeaway. And that's the only hopeful thing that he can do. It must have taken every fiber in his body for him not to go back to the BU bridge in 13 degree weather and be like, look, here's here's a sleeping, here's more, or come with me. This is sick. Come on, come with me. Sure. He's got a great heart. I mean, by his own words, it was possible she could have died. That's a tough spot, man. Just wow. But also, you know, as we both know, Sean, it's also possible that using is going to get her oh, to yeah. the same place. And so yeah. Well, there's a reason why he chose to do that. It's not that he was an evil guy. He came to the point where he realized this is it. Yeah. And there are going to be nights like this. Sean, going on that guy, the, the person who says, oh, these stories, these stories are depressing. They're almost asking you, like, why would anybody, what do you get out of these things? It might cause someone who is into storytelling to ask themselves, like, why am I doing this? Well, it's so listen and follow this logic. Why am I telling a story? Because I want to connect with other people. So a good way to connect with other people is to leave them with a sense of hopefulness. And so... Uh, before I get started, I know I want an ending that'll put a smile on their faces or a sense of hopefulness. I want to convey that. And in my mind, that perverts the whole process because it may not come directly from the story itself. And it's kind of a contrivance. What bums me out about it is it sort of commodifies the story and it takes the art out of it. If you imagine someone like yourself, like you had an experience in life and you're like, no, I need to take that on. I need to tell a story. You're not saying, I need to find the hope in it so that other people will pay attention to me. Never, never have I thought that. You know, and then sometimes you might discover as you're developing the story, you're like, yeah, she's in recovery. Yeah, and I guess that's when I started to think in a way that was, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of the situation or this bind. It doesn't always have to be dour, but it does have to sort of emerge in a natural, organic way. And you can smell it when it's not happening that way. I think you can usually smell it. There's a story. I I always reference a story. I feel weird talking about this on the podcast because it comes up a lot. But there's nothing about the story I share in the hospital that's hopeful, except for one little line at the end. And it really wasn't there because you as the audience should feel hope. It was that this dude did something and I felt a little better. And, you know, it's sort of like, wow, okay. And I don't say it, but I think implicit in it is like, yeah, you can make a little difference by doing a little thing. That's nice, essentially. But I think had I ended it with, we're saying you too can make a difference, do nice things. I think it kills the whole story. Yeah. It's gone. It's done. I mean, and so, and I think people responded mostly favorably to that. Why? Well, I don't know. Getting back to Don's thing and hope, it's that I don't, I don't know. I never thought about hope when I was writing the story, but I think people find hope in the fact that I'm willing to tell the story. Yeah. And again, the fact that I crafted it and told it in a way that is decent or hopefully at least decent, that allows that to come through. But there's people who are willing to tell a story and there is hope in that, but they don't really know how to do it. And so the hope gets lost because it becomes, you know, saying a bunch of stuff and it's all over the place. That's where I want to spend the majority of my time in this work because you've got people. These are my people. This is my tribe, Kurt. I have got a story or stories. Legit. I'm not fucking around. I don't think I have the skills to get it to the place where I can craft it and tell it and people will really want to hear it. 
or hear more of it or give me their seven or 10 minutes. Fucking love those people. So if you get somebody who doesn't ever admit their mistakes or isn't sort of an in, in-process in person, you know, willing to learn something new, to me, it's sort of it's the opposite of hope. It's a bummer. It's an immovable object. It's not a real uh, plasticity, yeah. it's not a real hum- humanity. It's someone who's in competition. I'm not going to look bad. Yeah. I'm going to have a yeah. conversation with you. You're right. It almost goes against everything we talk about with respect to story. I'm not going to look bad is not where you want to, not a starting point. It's like you got to sort of yield to, look, I'm just going to try to make this transparent. Yeah. This is who I am, foibles and all. Yeah. You know, listen to me. I'm not going to, it's not a pity party. This is just me being a human being. And you know what? Yeah. You might want to listen because you might be drawn to it because you're a human being too. You know, that's the way yeah. it works. So I'm just thinking about the storytellers I've worked with on this podcast. So yep. Julie, Andrew, and now Don, all three of those people said the same thing. No, I will do as many recordings as you want. At some point, each one of them said that. That right there is, oh, these are people who are totally open to even harsh feedback. Give me the goods. I need to get better at that. That's a hopeful thing in and of itself. Absolutely. So let's talk about, you know, what it can do. Let's talk about the the positive, like when it is in the story in a natural way and we can believe in it, still believe in the story, directly addresses the anxiety that we feel about having absolutely no control over the future. You're listening to someone tell a story. That's your whole world for six minutes. There's nothing else. If you're really drawn to the story, there's nothing else. That's the magic of any art. One that sucks you in and doesn't and tells you, like you forget about your damn clock and the phone and the next thing. And, and then if it has some bit of like, this person is trying, hence hope. You know, this person is trying. All it is is hope is just about effort. We know where this all winds up. We don't get to live forever. But this person is trying to be somewhat different. This person is trying not to be a drug addict or to be clean. This person is trying not to be a compulsive liar. This person is trying not to be hyper competitive. This person's trying to be a better husband. Those things are all kind of down there. Those are tough things, but they create, a, they can generate a sense of hope in the story, like trying. At least we're trying. We haven't given up. That's it. When we talk about it's the fight and the struggle. The guy at the radio station's like, nah, man, that's dark. He's got built-in deflection system. That's his coping. You know, he's like, okay, I'm going through life like this. And don't you put any of that darkness on me? That's how he understands it. We're just comprehending it in a different way. We see it as a value add. I want to take Don's story for a moment. And I want to ask a couple of questions about it. Questions we have asked one another on our prior podcast episode. So just straight up, not loaded. Does Don, do you think Don thinks storytelling is a hobby? No, I don't. I mean, I don't want to speak for Don, but I think it's a necessary act. Do you think Don starts his stories, or we can say this story, with I'm going to get or try to get to the emotional heart of this thing? So inside of the story, there is uh, emotional through line, a story of abandonment. You know, mm. some people are being cast off and he starts at first, I'm scratching my head. I'm like, why are we, when I, he says, when I came out, it was really hard on my family. My mother was sort of, so torn up about it. She talked about committing suicide. And then he talks about a friend who goes home to New Jersey 
and his parents had moved away rather than telling him because mm -hmm. they just can't deal with his homosexuality. And I'm like, well, okay, this is gripping, but what does this have to, when I listen to it again, I'm like, okay, why does he start out this way? And it's just like a good short story, a good piece of literature. It's like, oh, okay. I see these are people who flirted with abandonment or were abandoned in their different faces of abandonment in life. The only thing we've talked about explicitly in the podcast in that it was one of the episodes that was around sort of technical stuff was wonder. I'm going back to each episode. I only have a couple more here because this is only our fifth one. Does Don craft this story in a way where there is wonder for you? Are you wondering about what's going on? What's going to happen? What's happening next? That type of thing. So the answer is no, I didn't feel that. This is what happens with uh, coaching or teaching is you hear someone's story so many times that there isn't possibility really for wonder by the final version. You're just married. You're like, oh, I know that this sure. story delivers. We're bringing it. But no, it wasn't the beginning. And sometimes, Sean, I teach people in, in both writing and storytelling, like that first thing that comes out of your mouth or that first paragraph, that is valuable real estate. You're welcoming somebody in your house. I didn't feel that way with Don's story. The final version comes across and there's this detail about how deeply felt his mother's disappointment was mm. to the point where she was considering ending her life. I'm like, oh, okay. So maybe if I'm listening to this for the first time, this is what grabs me by the lapels. I'm like, okay, this dude is going to be sharing some stuff. Mm. Makes me wonder what's coming. I had a different take on it. Maybe I'm defining wonder a little differently. The way he talked about his daughter sleeping under the bridge in the freezing cold weather. This is a small thing, but I remember thinking, nice job in not immediately telling us it was really cold out. I was worried about her. She's okay. Right, right, it right. Was, he stretched that moment out a little bit. Going to sleep. I know it's getting colder outside. And I, as the uh, listener, I'm thinking, what's going to happen here? Like, yeah. What's happening? Uh, is he going to be okay? More importantly for me, was she going to be okay? Is she going to live? A lesser storyteller would have just told us. And that might have been just fine. It's very, it's, it's very compelling and it's very real. I, I like the fact that he had the wherewithal, so to speak, to say, I'm going to stretch this moment out a little bit, probably because that's how he kind of experienced it. We, I don't think we usually experience it of how we tell it. She was really cold. I was really worried. It turned out she's okay. That's actually not how you're experiencing it. The way Don crafts it, it's a little bit closer to the way I think most of us experiencing these moments. They're not like pop, pop, pop in it. He's yeah. going through it. Let's stay close to that. So what he does is he identifies that there's tension in the scene. Yeah. Okay. So there was tension for him. He couldn't sleep. He's looking at the, looking at his phone. What temperature is it? Is it going to warm up? What, how is she? And because he allows that to build, yeah. he can pop it too. He gives us relief. And I have to think that on the other side of relief, I mean, I know that we're, we're driving home this theme today of H-O-P-E, but what, what's on the other side of relief? Well, there's hope that, you know, things are going to go better now. Yeah. You know, conversely, if, he's, if he just, get, you know, blurts it out, drop my daughter off the bridge. She's, you know, it's cold. I don't know yet, but she's going to be fine. We don't go through this experience with him. We feel none of the tension. Right. 
none of the drama of the situation. We right. don't experience it as Don experienced it. Right. And we're just like, so we don't really get to experience. So you can look at the, the darkest parts of someone's story and I, and you can find, you know, hopefulness in it because on the other side of that relief that he gives us when he releases the tension is this idea that things might go better. Now there's a new day, literally a new day. The sun rises on the BU bridge and she comes out from under it and she's still going to have a dad who's thinking about her and she's still alive. We find out there's hope in that. Okay. It doesn't have to be tying the bow at the end of a, no. In fact, when we hear people tying bows at the end of their stories, we start looking away. It's just, it just becomes something that you avoid. Yeah. The final question I have is uh, scar and wound. I'm sure this is still a challenging thing for him in his life. I don't know. This was a few years ago. So presumably this isn't some like wide open bleeding wound. Or he probably wouldn't have been able to tell it, wouldn't have wanted to tell it. We both know the stuff like in both addiction, like he's talking about in the story, and mental illness. Situations stabilize, but you never, ever say that everything's okay now. It's a perfect metaphor for like our existence in general. Nothing is ever okay. And there's mistrust that pops up in the storyteller who wants to tell you that. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. And so what he's saying is he drops in this a few years ago. Well, I don't want to speak for Don, but I have to think that if it's my daughter, I'm like, I'll never really let down my guard. So when someone quits smoking cigarettes, if they're really going to quit, they're just going to say, I can't just have one. So if I woke up tomorrow morning and I had one cigarette, it would be 20. And I think these situations, you worry about drawing analogies to something that's so emotionally fraught for other people as mental illness and drug addictions. Use what you can to understand other people. And I think you're always just like, okay, I'll trust it in the moment. But in general, you know, it's day to day. I don't think he was crafting the story the day after uh, Thanksgiving is all I'm saying. Yeah, that's a good point, Sean. Like when some time passes, you, you do tend to at least get your breath. So the question I'm being asked is, when is it important to leave the listener with a sense of hope? And my short answer is never. And a a slightly less glib and thoughtful answer is that the ending needs to be integral to the story. It needs to flow naturally from the story and in service of the story. And there are times when that is going to be a hopeful ending and times when it isn't. And I try to stay away from ever explaining to the listener like what they should think or how they should feel about what they just heard. If you need to take that shortcut, you've got bigger problems. So I guess that's my answer. If it's in service to the story, you have the right ending. Otherwise, you don't, hopeful or not.